Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. On this episode of First Lady and Friends, we have Emily Cox Pearson, my dear sister-in-law and my dear friend. We have a conversation about her growing up and living with cystic fibrosis. We take a deep dive into our shared surrogacy journey, and we talk about how to create empathy by learning from people's stories. Let's go. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. We are here today with a very special person who is my dear friend, who is also uh, my sister-in-law, and we have a long history that we're going to talk about, but welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you. It's good to be here. This is Emily Cox Pearson. Um, Emily is actually Spencer, uh, the governor's sister. Um uh, but we have more history than just that, which we'll we'll get to in a little bit. But first of all, Em, she's adjusting her chair. It's fine. Sorry. She's a little short. <laughs> I just made it go down lower. It's fine. <laughs> it's all good. Um, but so, Em, just talk about a little bit about um, Fairview. What was it like growing up in Fairview? Oh, Fairview with the governor. Um, <laughs> that's a loaded question. No, <laughs> no, it was it was good. I mean, I had a great childhood. I wanted to get out of Fairview so badly. <laughs> yes, th- yeah, same. That was my goal. Um, I did not achieve it, but <laughs> well, you did. For a I've minute. learned to love it. And appreciate what I had as a kid that I didn't realize I had until I had kids. Um, it was just quiet, beautiful. Um, you had to make your own fun. And we did. We did that. So, you know, swimming in creeks, which I don't recommend for people with cystic fibrosis, but we didn't know any better. So <laughs> we know better now, so we do better. But exactly. Um, so it's interesting. So I did not say in the intro that, but you um, have a genetic disease called cystic fibrosis. And it's interesting because I, of course, have been around you for low these many years. And there's a lot I learned in this book that I'm reading called um, Breath from Salt, right? Yes. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Great book. I'm about halfway done. Uh, yeah. It's a little, it gets a, little it's a technical. Lot. So yes. I've, I'm struggling. I did have to put it up to 2.0 because yeah. I had to, I was really trying to get through it, but it's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. Um, but so like, tell me what childhood events do you think defined you? Oh, so... Um, when I was five, my parents were divorced, and for sure, that defined the rest of my life. Um, 
I think I remember going to school and I had I have to take enzymes every time I eat. And I was so ashamed mm. and embarrassed. And so I didn't want anyone to see them. So I would hide them in my pocket and then go to the drinking fountain and take them away from everybody, but often forgot. So then I would come home and have a stomach ache. And so I think those things really defined me. Um, I think my friends that were constantly with me helped me to help define me. Um, when I was in eighth grade, I came down with pneumonia and should have probably gone into the hospital, but we were so nervous about what that looked like because we didn't know. I didn't know anybody besides my brother that's two years older, Benji, with CF, um, and he had never been in the hospital. So we were just scared, and when you don't know, um, it's a lot easier to have fear. And so I did a lot of extra um, breathing treatments at home, and I had one friend that would come and just sit with me every night, and his mom bought us bean bags and we just sat and watched movies and it was just it was just very defining to know that there were people in my life like that that would truly just be a part of it regardless of what that looked like yeah and weren't weren't judging you or didn't think you were weird yeah. i think anytime when we're kids like anything that makes us different is yes. is yeah and not pitying me cuz that was the biggest thing is i just didn't want to share things to get pity. I just, I didn't want anyone to think I was different than them. And, um, I remember once telling a boy that I liked in high school that I had CF and he changed from that moment on. It was like, Oh, are you okay? Is everything okay? I'm like, dude, I'm the same as I was yesterday. Like just don't it's do you that. that's different now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I swore I would never tell another boy until I knew that it was going to be serious. And the next boy that came was Ben, that's now my husband, so he knew pretty soon. <laughs> well, so okay, let's. I know there's um, there's probably some other school experiences, but let's let's jump into this. Um, like we've alluded to this, what is? I think there's so many people that have no idea. I know I've, I've explained it a million times, so I'm sure you have five million times. Yeah. But what is cystic fibrosis? Um, okay, so I mean, we could get really technical, which I'm not good at, but I'm just going to go to the the real uh, baseline. CF is a, it's a genetic disease. It's, um, help me with the word here. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking, I'm like, oh I don't gosh, know. I can't think. It's a recessive, sorry. It's a recessive oh, yeah. okay. gene. So um, each parent has to be a carrier. And then I receive that, it's called a mutation, a mutated gene, from each parent, and um, that's how you get CF. So if both parents are a carrier, you have a one in four chance. You know, those little pundit squares you used to do in biology, that's it. So we had three kids with my parents, and two of us had CF. So And Spencer um, is the oldest, and he was, you know, as the firstborn, didn't have it, so they right. didn't even know to, yeah, they to had no idea. It. They'd never heard of CF. It wasn't in the family. I mean, I feel like it's something that is a shock to most families unless they've already had either a child with it or someone 
before them that has had it. But especially back then, um, I was born in 1979, and it just wasn't very common, wasn't heard of or talked about much. And so it really was. When Benji was born, that was a shock to them. They they could kind of tell with me. They didn't get me tested or couldn't at the time. I think till I was like one or two months old. And so they they just had their inklings because of the way I was failure to thrive is how it was coined back then. Yeah. So they pretty much knew that's what I had. Well, and the the book I was reading, you know, it really talks about it, it's interesting because I think CF if if people do know about it, they know it as sort of a lung disease or, or, you know, that you, you can't breathe. I mean, if you hear that little puff, that's your oxygen. Yes, I have oxygen on. <laughs> if I turn it up, you hear a, a chime. It's fine. <laughs> um, but I think what was interesting about the book, and I knew you guys took the reason you took, you, you referenced taking enzymes is because it's actually, you know, it also affects the pancreas, yes. which is, you know, where those enzymes are produced. And the book I was reading, that's where they first sort of figured it out. Yeah, it was in the pancreas first and then realizing there were other things involved, especially the lungs. Um, it's interesting, you know, the older that I got before it was, I just thought, oh, it's a lung disease. It's a pancreatic deficiency. And now you realize it's multifaceted. It's the whole body. It's affecting every cell, you know, yeah. and it affects your liver, it affects your kidneys. The medication you take affects your livers and your kidneys. So, I mean, it's just osteoporosis is a big thing from um, not being able to absorb your fats and, you know, absorb your food the right way. And so there's malnutrition and just so many things. Um, I mean, there are new drugs that have come out that have changed the game in big ways, and especially for me. So it's it's just been really interesting to see the timeline of cystic fibrosis and where we're at today. Yeah, I, and again, reading that book, I I didn't really the history. It's such an interesting history because um, it's all about um, figuring this stuff out. And the guy was like the guy who had CF was literally like taking his own skin samples yes, yeah. to to try to figure out some of the the way we can. Um, find the genetics they were trying to find the mutation trying to trying to identify these clear i mean really the big breakthroughs came in like the early 90s yeah early um, i think oh now i can't remember like 1989 maybe don't was, quote me on that i think people, that was right when they when, when they, they discovered the gene the gene and yeah they, it's so interesting because i remember that and i remember them saying okay 10 years we're gonna have a cure so in 1989 i'm 10 years old yeah. You know, and they're telling me, okay, we're going to have a cure. And I just remember, and I don't know why, at 10 years old, don't you just believe everything you hear? Yeah. But I didn't believe that. I didn't think that was true. Um, and I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to live life. And so when I was born, my parents were told that my brother and I would live to be about 12. So, you know, I just... I don't remember when I was told that. I just feel like it's something I always kind of knew in the back of my mind. I don't, we didn't have like a conversation, sit down, this is, you know, your prognosis. Yeah. And, but I do remember them telling me in 10 years we'll have a cure. And I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to live every day. 
I'm not going to live for 10 years. I'm going to live for tomorrow. And whatever each day, however many days that is, that will be good. Good enough. That's amazing. And, And I don't think always people process things in different ways. Yeah. I think you and your brother have processed things in a, in really different ways. Yeah. Um, good or bad. I mean, it's, right. it's not good or bad. It's, it's just coping. It's yeah, how you it's, cope. it's personalities. It's how yeah. we how we cope. But also CF, people with CF, um, it can have the very same gene mutations, but be completely, have completely different um, lung function yeah. or, or the, or things that affect the them. The way it presents itself. Yeah. So, so you, you know, you can talk about like Benji and you and having completely different, uh, sim- I don't know. Yeah, symptoms aren't those. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Just like, I think the way it presents itself is just so different in every person, regardless of mutations. Like you said, we have the exact same mutations from the same parents and it's it's just very different. You know, I have very severe lung disease and he's he's mild. He's more trending toward moderate now, but at 43 now, that's yeah. pretty incredible to yeah. be doing that well. And even for me, I mean, to still be here at 41 is pretty miraculous. Talk so. a little bit about um these hospital stays that you you referenced that you didn't do, but then now it's become pretty much a yeah, part of your so life. So the f- the first time I went in the hospital, I was almost sixteen years old, and I again I was very embarrassed. I didn't want to tell anyone. Um, I didn't realize then. I realize now that was a lot of shame. That and I think it was just because nobody talked about it, and so and not because they were scared to. I think. I think my parents didn't want me to to worry and didn't want me to be fearful. Mm. But I think sometimes the not knowing is much more scary than than knowing. And um, my first hospital stay, I honestly thought I was going to die. I thought, okay, it's all downhill from here. Yeah. You know, and I went in the hospital and it was the first time I'd ever had a pick line, which is... Um, Way better than an IV, I will say. I hate IVs. But, you know, they would go, they went in the crook of my arm and put this um, really small, it almost looks like a little licorice rope that's white. And you, I mean, the tiny ones. And it goes up through your vein to your heart and, or I guess through your artery. I, I'm going to get all this wrong. <laughs> my brain. You've only done have, it like 5,000 yeah. times. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, it goes up to your heart and medicine, antibiotics go in. And so I had that. It was a 10-day stay. And I went over UEA so I wouldn't miss as much school. And I remember coming out. Well, first of all, it was like you could eat whatever you wanted. And back then there were like no rules that you had to stay in your room where now it's so different. Um, we couldn't be, we can't be around people with CF now because we found that you can give each other bacteria that's growing in your lungs. But back then, nobody knew any better. And so I met the very, this girl that I'd never known anybody else with CF but my brother. So it's the first time I've met somebody else. We hit it off. We had sleepovers. We would have our nurse, we would make sure we had the same nurse and come in, stay in the same room, and she would take care of us all night. And, Anyways, it was just so much fun. I got done. I was like, okay, I can do that again. I can eat whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. This is great. 
And so I looked forward to it. I did it almost every year after that. And um, it's not as fun anymore. <laughs> Especially this year with COVID, I couldn't have any visitors. So I was literally trapped in this little room. Um, but, you know, we find ways to to make do. And thankfully with um, technology now, every, everything is so much different. So... Yeah. And that PIC line, uh, it's antibiotics that really clear out those uh, and loosen everything in your lungs so that yes. so that the oxygen. So I would I do increased. So every day I do tr- breathing treatments. I do three a day now. Um, at, there was a point in my life I was up to like five to six a day. Um, but in the hospital, they do four a day. Um and then the antibiotics are killing the bacteria in your lungs, but it's never fully gone because we have um, such strong bacteria, they call them bugs, that antibiotics don't completely kill. And I am um, i don't have a lot of antibiotics that I'm receptive to, so we have to come up with some good combinations. Because over 40 plus years... Yeah, you just become resistant to a lot of things. And these, you know, if you've heard of superbugs, that's what we have going on. And, you know, I can't give them to anybody else around me, but unless you have CF, then it can be a real danger. So, yeah. Well, I want to keep talking about this. I think it's really interesting. Again, we want to, we want to hear your point of view from someone who's experiencing something, um, quite rare, but um, I want to continue this conversation about what exactly CF is and what it means in your life. We'll be right back. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are here with Emily Pearson, who is my sister-in-law, Spencer's sister, and also my very, very dear friend, and we are connected in some really great ways besides that even. (laughs) But we are going to keep talking about CF. It's cystic fibrosis. It's a terminal illness um, that you've lived with for 41 years. 41 (laughs) and three months. And you really (laughs) celebrate the birthdays because these are not things you're ashamed of. Every every milestone is a really big deal, and we love that. Yeah. so just walk us through, and we've talked a little bit about this, but walk us through like a day in the life of someone with CF. Okay. So wake up. First thing you do, take your pills. Um, it's so weird because I have this before Trikafta life and after. So explain Trikafta. a little bit about Trikafta because okay. we, we you've mentioned that, but yeah. it, and I know what it is, but for yes, our listeners... Yes. 
Uh, this is a really, really big deal. Yeah. So probably, oh gosh, I'm trying to think when the study even started four or five years ago. Um, we knew there was a really big drug coming out and I just kept telling myself I had to hang on as in live for this drug because I, I knew it was going to be a game changer. And um, so it's called a CF modulator where it, instead of treating the symptoms, it's actually changing the cell in your body. And um, they had had previous modulators that had come out. Um, I'm going to forget all the names because I haven't been on them, but uh, Kaleidico, um, Simdeco, and I may not even be pronouncing them correctly, but doing my <laughs> we, best. We won't here. know any better. Doing my best for <laughs> anyone that has CF and you're like, that's wrong. Um <laughs> Anyways, Trikafta. So it came out to the population. Um, I couldn't be in the study because my lung function was below 40%. Um, but the, it came out in, oh gosh, September, October 2019. And thankfully, I was able to get started on it in November of 2019. And I was on it for... 11 days, and then I broke out in a crazy severe rash. Oh, I still I, st- <laughs> I still show people that picture I, just yes. for like... I mean, we might need to just party post trick. the picture <laughs> in, the, in the Instagram. It's, it's like one of those that you used to see in like the health books of like those terrible diseases. And yes. you're like, oh, oh yeah, like that can't be real. It was it was real and it was, it was awful. horrible. Awful. And my doctor said... So the first day I was like, oh, I'm going to push through this. I've dealt with rashes. This is no big deal. <laughs> and then the second day, I, my back felt like it was on fire. And I go and look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, wow. I go and show my husband and he's like, he dropped some farm words. <laughs> and as I, he does, <laughs> I immediately called the doctor and he's like, okay, you have to stop. Try CAFTA. And I, in 11 days, my life had changed. I was breathing better. I wasn't coughing anymore. It was, I mean, I to do a segment like this, I would just continually cough. And so to be able to do that now is, is pretty amazing. Um, anyways, I going off that was one of the hardest things I've had to do, not knowing if I'd ever get back on it and what that would look like in the future. Um, but thankfully, I was. So... Now, my day is I wake up, I take the pills I can't eat with food, and then I wait 20 minutes, and then I take my Trikafta, which I have to eat fatty food, so I have to have, you know, everybody differs, so I'm just going to say that, but I try to get like eight grams of fat with um, this pill, and I take this pill with my enzymes, Um, and then I wait about 30 minutes to do a treatment. A treatment consists of four different nebulized medications. And then, um, I go about my day and it used to be that I, I couldn't even do anything besides get out of bed and then I would have to do a treatment. But now with Trikafta, I could go, you know, a couple hours if I needed. I don't, but, um, and I, anyways, I end up doing three treatments a day. Um, I do Trikafta again at night with food and try to get exercise. I've been really slacking lately, but, 
Um, and I have two kids. And so I'm mom and wife and puppy mom now and <laughs> just really, really trying to thrive amongst a pandemic. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let's let's talk about that because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've. We're, we're kind of coming out of this, but um, I guess as I've gone through this pandemic um, and, and especially in the beginning, um, I just I know people have different opinions on masks, no Everything. masks, blah, 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 <laughs> blah. And f- frankly, I, I guess I just would just want to scream because, you know, everybody else is doing this for the first time, but our family's kind of been doing this with you and Benji time. for many, many years. Yeah. I mean, if we go to a family get together, you're constantly checking. Does somebody have a cold? Does somebody have a sniffle? Does somebody have a little cough? Like if, you know, and kids always have something. And so we're, we're very well aware. If I'm going to a family gathering and I have my daughter is starting to feel a little sniffly, I say, Em, we're going to stay home because yeah. she's feeling a little sniffly and I don't because just one sort of benign cold virus for a little kid can turn into a huge hospital stay for you as well as maybe some decline in lung function right. going forward. Yeah. So so talk to us about what COVID was like for you. Oh, can you say hell in this? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was not good. It was really, really hard. Um, you know, I was really used to already sort of isolating during the winter, you know, because that's when colds and flu are the worst and all that. So it kind of happened right then when that was already happening. And I was like, oh, you know, it's not going to be, it'll be a few months. It'll be fine. We'll be okay. I pulled my kids out of school before school pulled kids out of school the day before. And then, um, I, we just kept going and avoiding people and not going anywhere. I mean, I guess going as in going into our living room, yeah. that was about it or the backyard. And, um, we got a puppy because my kids needed something, but then it continued. And my doctor told me this is going to be a long haul. I was like, oh, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> Anyways, but You're he was not right. my favorite person today. He's so smart. So he was right. And we really were pretty secluded for a year. My kids didn't go to school. I did. I have a daughter that's 16, oh, 17 now. Uh, my son is 10. And he did homeschool or online school, which was horrible. Um, he has ADHD, and that was one of the most challenging things for him to not be able to play and be with his friends and his cousins. We made things work. We would do, um, we called it nerd time. He (laughs) coined that phrase. Um, He and his cousins would get online and zoom or uh, FaceTime and play games together on the computer. And, you know, and then we realized, oh, it's okay if they're outside, but apart. And so we would let them play outside. I mean, it's freezing cold, but nobody cared. They just wanted to be together apart, but outside, you know. And so my daughter, I mean, we did do, we did let her do drill team. And I'm sure people didn't agree with our decision for that. But for her mental state, she wore a mask every day to practice. And I'm still amazed 
that she, the sacrifices that they both made. And my husband worked from home and did not have a door on his office. And I mean, just so many crazy things that I'm, it, it brought us together in ways I didn't know could, could happen, but it was, there were times it was beautiful and there were times when, oh wow, I didn't know we would still be standing at the end. So <laughs> who's going to be alive at the end of yeah. this day? <laughs> That's the new game. That was the new game we played. We all lived. It was amazing. Even the dog lived, which I was surprised <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> we all were. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I know. And I think people, I guess that's when we talk about empathy, um, my my frustration with the lack of empathy is that if it didn't happen to me, it didn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, people like you who literally. It's life or death. It is life or death. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, it ended up. Yeah. Being life or death. Right. Um, but for you, it was it was a guarantee. Yeah. I mean, if you would have gotten COVID. Yeah. Like, th- that's it. Yeah. And so, you know, your kids and they have to sacrifice and everybody around you has. And that's this idea of a community and a society is, yeah, I may be okay. Yeah. But who, who am Who's I spreading to it be? to that's yeah. not going to be okay? And I think that's where... I saw a lot of disconnect because I think people just like psychologically, psychologically couldn't go there yes. in their own mind. I Agreed. Guess. Yeah, I, that was really hard for me. I had a couple meltdowns. Uh, it was hard on our marriage. I'll be really completely honest. The first few months just trying to get on the same page of what was OK and what wasn't OK and what would help me feel safe and what was needed for our kids and you know I think overall we came out stronger and better understanding of each other but um I finally had to come to I'm a very spiritual very very faithful person and I just had to come to grace I had to give people grace people that have never dealt with situations like this because I've dealt with it my whole life and I realized I was coming from a place where I knew what needed to happen for me, but other people had no idea, you know, and even still where COVID is thankfully getting better and we're getting vaccinated and things are looking, looking up, um, you know, we still have to have family parties outside because um, my brother was CF. He has a bacteria that would be, you know, all growing up, we basically had the same bacteria. So we didn't really worry as much. Um we were still cautious, but not nearly what we probably should have been. Um, but now he has a bacteria that if I got, I would not be able to be to receive a lung transplant. And where I have severe lung disease, that is a very real option that is on the table that I'm being monitored now for just, you know, thankfully, Trikafta has made things better. I was... I had just, sorry, I'm all over the place. No, no, I want you to tell I, this story because this is important. I had just been to Stanford the summer of 2019, um, Stanford, Univer- Stanford Hospital, um, getting a workup for a lung transplant and basically told, like, this is your option. You get this or you're not going to be here much longer. And um, it was a week long of tests that were... Oh, wow. More emotional than I anticipated. You know, 
things that my husband and I had previously talked about, but never really had to stare this this in depth. And um, conversations with family that was very difficult. Um, and then the Friday of my last day there, getting all these tests, my doctor called and said, "I think we're going to be able to get you on Trikafta soon." And I felt like that was an answer to prayer. Um, so I did. I got approved for a lung transplant, but I um, deferred. But said, "Let's still monitor me. We'll see how things go with Trikafta." Now here we are. You're almost two later, and I'm still going pretty strong. So much healthier than I was back oh, then. Yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah, and and I guess for our listeners too, the the talk about the decision, the transplant decision, because there's a there's a there's sort of a weird point. Yeah. It's this window. Yes. So talk, window. talk about that window because we were awfully close yeah. with you. So there's a window that either you're too healthy or you're too sick and you do not want to be in the too sick window because then you have no options. And basically the doctors there were like, yes, you're in the window, but one bad, one bad bug, one bag or one bad um, cold you know, one bad hospitalization and you may not be there anymore. And it was it was a really tough decision. Like if I choose the wrong thing, I'm not here anymore. Yeah. You know, if I wait and something goes wrong, I don't survive. Or if I don't wait and I get a lung transplant, but it doesn't work out great, then I missed that option for Trikafta, you know, and finally I just said, look, I've waited 40 years for this drug. I'm going to wait three more months. And I really felt through prayer that that was the right choice. And now I can look back and be like, oh, absolutely. That was the right choice. I was really guided in that. Well, and lung lung transplants aren't a cure either. No. And yeah, I think people don't understand that. I mean, there is no cure for cystic fibrosis. There are good things that are happening and there are wonderful things that have helped, but there is no cure. And a lung transplant for sure is not a cure. It's just trading one set of problems for another. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the, you know, you're, you're playing percentages, you're playing odds. Yeah. Um, when, when it gets to that. Um, this is all very serious, but I have to say that through all this, we we laugh a lot, a lot. And one of the things, <laughs> my favorite, my favorite things to laugh about is the things that people <laughs> say to you. For instance, so you you be thinking of the good ones. Okay. That you, like we were in our um, our church congregation, and um, one of our one of the sweet ladies who shall this remain the best one <laughs> said to you because you were coughing and um, as as per usual yeah. and um, she turned to you and said, "I I had that <laughs> for like five years, and you need this chocolate that she sold." <laughs> Everybody needs this chocolate. And it fixed her. It cured her. So she was trying to give you this chocolate to cure yourself. And I know that everybody means well. I do. Um, I often get handed a cough drop. 
<laughs> which is so sweet. It's so nice, but it's really not going to help much. Um, think you again. It's this before and after life that I have. Um, I have often. There was in college. We had a few instances, and you know, this one kid. I don't even remember what he asked me, but I said, "Yeah, I have." cystic fibrosis. He said, what's the prognosis? I said, well, it's terminal. And he said, well, we all have to die sometime. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, oh we do. Gosh. And then he said, better sooner than later. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> According <laughs> to you, apparently. Wow. But I really, I, you know, I get a lot of laughs. Uh, I just, I just have to laugh. That's my, that's my best medicine. And <laughs> thankfully I married a really funny guy. So it works out. We, we laugh a lot. Yes. Um, yeah. we've had some really fun ones. I'm trying to think of some of the other fun, I, some fun I, people. That yeah. <laughs> there are many, there are we, many. We make fun of the, the people that say weird things like that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, well, these are awesome, um, this is awesome information because um, I think people uh, need to be aware. So uh, we have also a story that I've alluded to that you and I have um, worked on a really huge project together. It's huge. It's still going. <laughs> it is still going. You're doing the, the heavy lifting at this point. But uh, in a minute, when we come right back, we will talk about our surrogacy journey. Get the Kleenex. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the First Lady and Friends podcast. We have today Emily Pearson, my sister-in-law, my friend, um, my surrogate journey partner. <laughs> um, so we want to tell this story because partly I love that we're here together because yeah. I get asked about this quite often and I never feel like I'm telling the whole story because you're not here. Right. And yeah. I can only... I think the last time we did it together was for the pyramid, like right. 10 years ago. <laughs> so... Yeah. No. It, yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. So um, it's, this, is a, this is a really great opportunity. So I'm glad you're here. Um, so let's just talk about, from your end, how, the, the lead up to how we got to that yeah, decision. to this place, yeah. to that place. Uh, so I have a daughter that is now 17. Um, she came with a lot of obstacles. You know, back then, again, I'm 41, really proud of my age, so that's never a secret. But um, I was, oh, wow, 23, I think, at the time. If I, I can't do math very well, but <laughs> something around that around that time. Um, I honestly don't know. So um, my health was fairly stable. I, I got married. So I guess I got married when I was 22. Had Cambry when I was closer to 25. But um, my health was stable, but I had a job that was super stressful. And I was going in the hospital more. Um, I had a new doctor that had come on um, right after we got married, and he hadn't really dealt with a lot of pregnancy and CF. I didn't know anybody that was with CF that had been pregnant. Um, you know, there wasn't Facebook and 
all those social media things to find people that way. And I'm sure there were plenty of people that had had babies, but... But just, probably not a ton, though. Yeah, I mean, it just wasn't super common. You because know, a lot of people hadn't had, yeah, had passed away. Long. Right. Yeah. So this is a funny story. Um, once I did get pregnant, I went to a, is it called a perinatologist, the high-risk uh, pregnancy OBGYN. And he looked at me, and I told him that I had CF. I didn't know him. And he said... Oh, I thought you all died when you were 12. And I was like, I need to get out of here. This not is the doc not the for me. For me. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally ended up at my regular hospital up at the U with a great doctor and um, did not fare well. I, I, you know, I was super naive. I didn't know a lot. I was used to just pushing through any problems at the detriment to my health and probably did the same while I was pregnant just thinking oh I can't breathe because there's a baby in there you know (laughs) not that oh you have cystic fibrosis your lungs suck right now and um ended up in the hospital on oxygen for the first time um really struggling and ended up on life support twice once right before um pregnant or once right before we ended up having her she was early I had her at 34 weeks and then once during labor um, I start it's called hemoptysis I was coughing up blood and they're like oh okay they were trying to induce induce labor at that time they tried to stop it but she was coming so they ended up putting me on a ventilator again which you know I mean I think a lot more people know about ventilators now due to COVID with a lung disease, it's really hard to get off when you're in that severe situation. And thankfully, I did. I got off twice. Still here. Haven't been on again, which is awesome. But uh, my daughter was four pounds. She was not getting the nutrients she needed. I wasn't getting the nutrients I needed. Um, I went from, I think, retaining so much water that I weighed like 120 pounds and then dropped to 103 the day after she was born. So just really not doing well. Um, But I wanted another one. (laughs) No, I felt like I was, we were supposed to have another one. Um, And I didn't know what that looked like. And I, you know, I talked to different people and uh, my brother at the time was my bishop and He was like, I can't talk to you about this. I just, it's too much. You can't have a baby. (laughs) My doctor was pretty much the same way. Um, He's like, it's just not, I mean, my baby doctor was like, oh yeah, I think you'll do great. (laughs) Because they were not CF doctors. (laughs) But my CF doctor was like, absolutely not. I think I gave him so many gray hairs. Even still, we talk about it. But, um, and through just really... I think inspired things. I I knew there was another baby for me and I had no idea how that was going to happen. And I gave it to God and I said, you tell me how this is going to happen and I'll do it. And that's where you came in. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And weirdly, I mean, we've been, you know, we had been really good friends. I mean, our we always did stuff together and yeah. we were doing kind of more and more stuff together. Our, our families were like our daughter, combining. Yeah, our daughters, well, Adam and Emma Kate were, pre, or Adam and Cambry were pretty good buddies. And yeah. Emma Kate and 
and Cambry are pretty good buddies. And yeah. they, anyway, yeah, it was just kind of, we vacationed together. We were doing a lot of things together. Um, we were just really good friends. And, um, I knew you were kind of having those thoughts and, and frankly, yeah, Spencer was like, as your bishop, he and your he couldn't separate the two, yeah. and he was like, um, "No." Anyway, there was an article in the Trib talking about the new surrogacy law um, for gestational carriers, which really laid out a a, a really good um, track of how how it should be done. Um, and and legally made sure that everything you know, the, like the the gestational carrier had no um, right to the child, you know. And and before the law, it was like basically if you were a surrogate or a, they call them gestational carriers, mm-hmm. um, you the the biological couple had to adopt, adopt their own child. Yeah, after the baby was born, which obviously you can see how many complications that would entail but through this law the the child is born and the 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 biological parents have their are automatically the parents yeah they have their name (laughs) on the birth certificate all anyway it lines it all out and it's it's a really good process um but there was this article in the tribune about someone who had gone through the process um and Spencer's like, hey, have you read this? And he showed it to me. And I was like, yeah. And like, it's never, never thinking. Like, that doesn't, that wouldn't even, even cross my mind. Um, I had a sister, my own sister who had um, infertility. And it just was never something that I felt was something that I would have even thought about. But after reading that article, you and I were having a conversation and literally, the thought came into my head and came out of my mouth without even processing processing it. it. And I just said, you know, I think I could do that for you. And and I'm not if anybody knows me, I'm not that kind of person. Right. You she had, doesn't I'd had friends that had said that to me and I was like, they mean well. That's so nice. I know they really think they would do that. I, and and maybe they would, but it never felt right. And but when I mean, there's a little, I'll, I'll share a little back to that after this, but, um, you know, Abby said that to me and I immediately was like, oh, she does not just say things to say things (laughs) like she doesn't want to just make you feel better. Like, and I was so taken aback. I made a joke and changed the subject because I did not (laughs) know. We both were like, okay, that was awkward. I did not know where (laughs) to go from there, but it was so interesting because, and just, to share a little, and maybe this, I hope this isn't too private or anyways, but just to share a little bit about the character of Spencer. Um, oh, guys, <laughs> I get emotional <laughs> when I talk about family and especially this situation. But um, the night before, I had literally, I had just found out that um, a mom was, a mom who had a daughter with CF had contacted me years ago, years before that. And we, you know, just wanting to know how to help her daughter. And she wasn't really open about CF. And anyways, so we got fairly close and I found out her daughter had passed away and she was, oh, I think 17. And it just hit me that, oh, I cannot do this again. I can't have another baby without dying. And how unfair to my husband 
and my daughter that I've worked so hard to live for to just leave them. And I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I had literally been sobbing all night to God and telling him like, I, I know there's another child, but I don't know what that looks like because I know this isn't something I can do. You have to tell me. And, and the next day, as, as the best as I can remember, it was literally the next morning I get a text from Spencer telling me that there's show it, giving me the link to this article. And I actually knew the girl she's since passed on to um, that had CF and she did surrogacy and ended up with twins. Um, and I just thought I could never ask anybody to do that. And I didn't I don't think even he knew at the time he was sending it. To say, oh, Abby's going to have a baby for you. I think he was just like, look at this. Like, this is amazing. And he had no idea what I had just been through the night before. But he's that in tune. <laughs> um, after that, we both kind of went to our corners and thought a lot about our little conversation. And I think... Um, I guess, fast forward, there was a lot of um, deep discussions and prayers and trying to figure out if this was the, the right thing. And, and when I have people come to me and say, oh, I really am thinking of doing this. Tell me about it. And I always say to people, um, it, it just has to be right. It just yeah. has to be right on both sides. It can't be. You know, I, you know, it can't be, you want me to do it. It can't be, I am offering it just for us, at least it was uh, all of us, all four of us basically coming to a conclusion independently. Yes. That was the same, the same conclusion. So after that happened, we said, okay, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it was scary. And it was, um, I still remember the first time we met with the doctor and I did not like him. I'm not going to say names, but he was very blunt and, and really just kind of negative about the whole situation, which I didn't understand. Um, I mean, I've come to understand that not everybody has the same viewpoint or opinion on what someone with um, a terminal illness should be doing in regards to family. But um that was hard for me. I thought, oh, here's this doctor that's supposed to be, this is his job. Why isn't he excited about this? Yeah. <laughs> no, he was, yeah, a little bit of a, of a Debbie Downer. I think yeah. he was worried about what that meant for you and, yeah. you know, taking care of it. And more just erring on the side of caution, I think, you know, yeah. making sure that my health was okay, which... It wasn't, yeah. but um, I mean, at that point I was fairly stable. I was still pretty moderate, yeah. low lung function, but surprisingly I've done pretty well with that low lung function yeah. over the past 15, 17 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then we, we go through the process. Um, obviously that results in a pregnancy um then there was a a moment we were sitting in our house together the four of us and the kids were running around if i remember right in the basement um i'd been doing my normal stuff i mean i had to have a little downtime after implant 
implantation, but pretty much normal stuff. I have three little boys. Emma Kate's four at the time, um, doing baseball, doing all this stuff. And we're just sitting there, and all of a sudden, something felt really off. And um, I start um, hemorrhaging and get to the doctor, uh, go in, I, which by the way, our, my, my OB was spectacular. Oh, the opposite of the so doctor you were so talking great. about. Yeah. He was all positivity <laughs> and, uh, went in to the ultrasound tech. He was not he so wasn't positive. very pleasant either. <laughs> no, looked at that, looked at what was going on and said, uh, yeah, this doesn't look great. Yeah. So we were really anticipating a miscarriage. miscarriage. Yeah, there was a subcutaneous hemorrhage. Is that what it was called? Uh-huh. Um, I still or remember. Subcryonic. Subcryonic. Sub- something. Something. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know. It's been a decade. We're we not have doctors. not looked up the lingo for a while. Um, but I remember going back to the fertility place and them doing an ultrasound and not getting, a, I don't know if you remember this, right? After them not getting a heartbeat right away. And then all of a sudden there's a heartbeat. And it was so interesting because both Ben and I, as we knew what was going on with Abby the night before, just felt very peaceful about the situation and felt like things were going to be fine, which, I mean, seems so naive. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there was greater things at play there. But Well, and also this, from my perspective, it... it <laughs> Maybe this is a too crass of a comparison, but it feels like you're driving someone's Ferrari mm-hmm. and like, <laughs> you're going to crash it at any moment. Like at this moment, I feel like it was crashing. Yeah. Um, your heart, your soul, your child is at stake here. Um, I'm feeling very responsible to make sure this pregnancy is successful. Um, And so having that moment where I'm like, oh, my gosh, I mean, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, do we start over? I'm I'm 34 at this point. I'm thinking I'm not going to be eligible much longer. We had literally put all our eggs in this basket. (laughs) That was literally that's all we had. (laughs) There were two actually that we put in two embryos and it was like that's it. That's all that took really. I mean all that were viable and we didn't have the funds for more and or the emotional capacity capacity yeah, for, for sure. that either and that's what i kept thinking to myself i can't do this again yeah i can't do this again yeah. um long story long it's uh, <laughs> the um had to be on bed rest um the hemorrhage healed mostly miraculously <laughs> <laughs> i still think those anyway so then we get to the point i'm on bed rest my kids are playing baseball i mean it was it was a it was a it was a pretty tough um, psychologically, mentally uh, time for me because um, I'm very active, very independent, and I'm seeing people having to do things for me. Um, 
with my kids, with my house, with dinner. dinner. I remember I mean, everyone yeah. bringing a dinner one night a week. So yeah. each night someone else is bringing a yeah. dinner. and Which is it was, so it was, not what I'm used yeah. to. And it was so interesting because I feel like, you know, I really struggle asking for help, but it wasn't hard asking for help for Abby. Like yeah. I was asking people to help <laughs> Abby. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> this. this is my fault. You know, and so then I'm feeling some guilt that she's laid up and she has four kids and you know my health really was fairly good at this time so I was able to go and help as much as I could yeah I remember I made a birthday cake for her son (laughs) because it was his birthday and you know I'm just any little very small compared to what she's doing for me trying to just make her load lighter well we did we had this incredible I mean we have big families we have um Incredible support and an yeah. incredible community. Again, a really um, conservative community and really worried. Like when we told people what we were doing and what, you know, that I was pregnant. Yeah, we had um, no idea the reaction we would get. And it was almost all positive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 99%. There was some, there was some, and those, that 1% was really, really tough because it yeah. was pretty personal. But um, there, so we go along. Everything looks good. Things are healing as far as the hemorrhage goes. He's growing. We find out he's a boy. Um, Very early. Quite early on. <laughs> 11 yeah. weeks. Yeah. So He was really not shy. <laughs> <laughs> Still not. Still not. <laughs> uh, anyway, then um, then along, he was due in January. I was, it was, a, it was November. It was about four days before Emma Kate, well, about a week before a week. Emma Kate's birthday yeah. and she was going to be turning four, I start leaking amniotic fluid and I kind of panic. It's too early and call the doctor, get into the hospital right now. We need to make sure it is fluid. It is, um, actually end up going in an ambulance from one hospital to, to another. Yeah. Um, do ultrasounds. Things are, they're trying to stop labor. I'm actually going into labor. They're, they're trying to stop it. Uh, after a couple of days in the hospital, they say, I, I actually start hemorrhaging again. And, and they, while she's doing that, I'm at home preparing a baby shower. <laughs> I forgot about that. I forgot that part. Baby showers were just not for me. I've come to know, but uh, so we immediately head up there, and yeah, you guys were at the hospital. Then um, uh, decide that it's the risk of infection, um, and and the the hemorrhaging is more risky than a premature baby. So they yeah. start giving the giving the Steroids, steroids and for his all those things that they do f- anticipating a preemie. Um, he is, we're sitting there, all of a sudden I'm realizing I am in, oh, you guys were on your way up, right? And I'm like, uh, you better hustle. Yes. Like, it's it, happening. It ended up being a little longer than we anticipated, but yeah, it was, we thought, you know, it could happen any minute. I was like, if I miss this, because I had to literally be put out before my daughter was born. I was like, if I miss this birth, I'm going to be so mad. 
So we gown up just in case because they're not sure. They think at some point or at, there's a possibility it could be C-section depending on yeah. where the placenta was and stuff like that. Which so, again, with C-section, they were like, we can't let you all in the room. I was like, yeah. oh no. <laughs> so but, we we get there, um, you know, TMI, I've, I've birthed four big Cox babies and um, he was teeny so it didn't take long. Out comes this little tiny thing. He was little. He was three. Uh, no, he was five. Oh, five. Five I ten. Yeah, Cambry was four pounds. He was five ten because you were giving him nourishment. I didn't give my child the nourishment. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, he yeah, was, he was, he was actually five. bigger but earlier than Cambry. He was 32 weeks, five days. And I'm a good eater. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So So he was born rushed right off to the NICU. Yeah. Um I'm rushed I'm taken back to my room all alone. Yeah. Um that was a moment that yeah. um I I don't I can't really describe because it was kind of personal, but it was it was a moment. I think it was the first time I'd been alone in a long time. Yeah. Um, but it, that it was over. It was, it was a relief. It was, um, it was a lot of things happening, um, in one mind and one body. <laughs> um, he was doing really well. He, he really was a champ. I mean, yeah. They, didn't even they really did have to do an event off. the first night, but he was off it within a few hours and then. He was on CPAP for like a, maybe 12 hours and then off breathing on his own. And and for me as a mom with CF, being on and off oxygen with both of my kids, looking at their oxygen saturation and seeing this 100% is something that's hard <laughs> to describe. So Healthy, healthy lungs. Yeah. Um, next morning... Um, I do remember, um, that night in the hospital, I stayed there. Spencer was really trying to get me to stay a couple of days just to rest and whatever. Um, mentally, I think that's when things started to be really like the most hard, um, for me. I almost didn't want to see him weirdly. Yeah. I was really conflicted on seeing him and I don't know how to describe that or yeah. why um I don't I don't I don't I don't even know why I can't explain why yeah. but there was just something in me that was really hesitant to see him I think Spencer finally talked me into going up to the NICU yeah um and that's the picture that we've seen is yeah. um me holding him for the first time with his little I think he had a CPAP, yeah, that's on, CPAP on yeah um for the first time and and it was pretty a pretty emotional moment. Yeah. Um, For all of us. Yeah. Um, after that, I think was when the hardest mental, uh, emotional stuff came. I think taking um, something that's the most powerful force in nature is the bond between a mother and a child and sort of trying to thwart it. Yeah. Um, and and you know in your brain 
it's not your child. <laughs> like, but I, there's this connection that I, can't yeah, be denied. I know that, but your body and your mind and your hormones and everything else is saying this. You've done this before. Yeah, you've done this four times before. Yeah, um, and so mentally, you're. I'm doing gymnastics. Like, I am really trying to talk myself um, through through this process. And um, I remember Spencer really trying to get me to stay there in the hospital. And I just had this thing like, I got to get out of here. I, I got to get out of here. I can't stay here. I have got to go home. And, um, and I've heard this described by women who have lost children that they feel like their arms are empty, like their arms are aching. And that's a, a little bit what I was feeling and this just urge, this sudden urge to have my children in my arms. Um, and I just, I could not get home fast enough to hold my children. And when I walked in the door and uh, <laughs> this is, this is a moment I'll never forget. My, my daughter who, became my little security blanket um, for quite a while. <laughs> She's four. And four-year-olds don't really like to be babied, especially her, because she's so fiercely independent. But she was exactly what I needed. She let me hold her. She let me baby her. She, I just, she just had to be my baby for quite a while until I could really... Um, get where I needed to be and in a, in a good space mentally and emotionally. Uh, and I think because I know you so well, cause we really, I feel like, you know, they did that, uh, question and answers with you for your, uh, very first podcast. I was like, Oh yeah, I know all those answers, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but we really got that close that I knew that she just needed her space you know, we were asked because you could only have so many visitors at that time because it was RSV season. And they said, who do you want on the visitor list? And I, I called Spencer and just said, you know, we want Abby to, but I know she may not be in that space. And he said, yeah, it's just, you know, have one of the grandmas or or something. And so, you know, we that was... It was hard just because I, I wanted to help her, but I didn't know how. And I realized just giving her space was the best thing that we could do at that time. And, you know, Lawson was in the NICU for three weeks, which I think may have been helpful. Yeah. You know, so that we we had this space with him and and then Abby was able to be at home with her kids surrounded by them. And, you know, and I do remember they I felt so awful because the kids just wanted to see him and they couldn't because of the rules that were happening. And, and so when we brought him home three weeks later, it was just such a, a joyous re reunion, I think for, I mean, for me. Well, and I think at that, by that point I was in a better space. I do yeah. remember it was shortly before Christmas I came over and just spent the afternoon yeah. holding him. Yeah. And I think that was the first time I'd held him since that first day. Yeah. Um, and, and it was a moment where I could, I mean, it's just, 
I think at that point I could, I, I was in a better space to be able to do that. And it was a, it was great. And yeah. ever since. It's, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's still amazing to me because I really do feel that there's this bond between them. And Lawson is the most interesting kid. <laughs> He's the best. He is amazing. He's hilarious. Um, but I've always, we've always been honest and super open about how he came to be. And he knows that Aunt Abby had him and that he was in her belly. And, you know, I have a picture of two embryos on my fridge that I keep all the time and and say, one of these, I don't know which one is you, <laughs> but one of them is you and you were put in Abby. And, and I still remember, I think it was maybe his fifth birthday. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and we went and got waffles and we always tried to try to do something for his birthday with Spencer and Abby and the kids and it doesn't always work out but when it does it's pretty neat but he and she might be able to tell this better than me but <laughs> he looked at her and he just said thank you for having me <laughs> we were all like taken he said, back he said thank you for letting me stay in your belly oh yeah <laughs> You know, and I was just like, and I hadn't even talked to him about that that day. And, you know, but he's just he's a pretty special kid that way to really be in touch with his own emotions and his own feelings and talks about things most kids don't. Yep. You know, and he's very in tune with his own and your emotions. He can. Yes. He can read you and he can. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. So it's, he has changed all of our lives in more than one way. (laughs) For sure. For sure. It was so, um, yeah, 10 years later, he's, he's thriving. He's doing great. He's back in school. Yes. Thankfully. Yeah. (laughs) For all of our sanity (laughs) and his. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, I, this has just been really um, cathartic, actually, (laughs) for both of us. I hope our listeners. Yes. Um, have gotten something out of it as well. Um, I think it's important that we share our stories because I think that's how people um, connect. Again, it's, it creates empathy. Once they know about CF, they can be more um, aware of people and not even just CF, but everyone around that, that maybe struggles and maybe um, is different. I, I love the saying, everyone has a story you know nothing about. You know, yeah. just give people grace because there's a lot of hard things everybody has to deal with. Yep. I love that. So we'll kind of, um, let's end with a super rapid fire. Um, what do you think people get wrong about you? I think I'm annoyingly optimistic, but people think (laughs) that I'm happy and optimistic all the time. And I, at least I think, I mean, I try to be really, um, I feel like I, who I am is what what you see is what you get. But I think, you know, people don't realize that I have really crappy days and I am not always optimistic or happy. <laughs> uh, what are you good at? Cooking. I was I was going to mention that and I'm glad you got to it because she is an incredible cook and has started baking bread and brings me bread every once in a while and it's so yeah. delicious. I started doing sourdough bread. That was my goal for 2021 and 
It's a good one. It has worked oh, out it's well. It's worked out for me. <laughs> it's and I'm not really modest about my cooking. I like, I'll take, my kids probably get so annoyed because I'm like, you guys have no idea how good you have it. <laughs> I know. I think I'm a pretty good, okay cook. And then the kids are so fussy. I'm like, seriously? But Gavin comes home and needs my food. And yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I, I am pretty good. You are good. Um, yeah. Favorite mom moment. Oh, wow. Um, I think just when you realize you're you're doing something right, you know, when my kids talk about something, whether it be, you know, something to do with um, the way they perceive other people, you know, that they're they're learning empathy and they're they're trying to be good humans. That is probably my favorite mom moment, yep. you know, or just an I love you that comes out of nowhere, which Lawson's really good at. Um, but yeah, I think knowing that some things are going right. Yeah. Not all. <laughs> Sometimes little, very few. But those little <laughs> post markers where yeah. you're like, OK, I'm 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 that. on the right okay. track. Yeah. They're not going to be like in jail next. Yeah. Week, so. <laughs> um. Snapshot of an ordinary moment that gives you true joy. Oh, all of us sitting on the couch, including the dog, <laughs> watching a movie and just being at peace with life. So fun. I love when my kids are home and they're all laughing really hard at yes. something that <laughs> yeah, and that cracks them up. That was, I actually, because I thought about this beforehand and anytime Ben is just cracking all of us up <laughs> which but. he is and this is before we end like this is one thing that i always felt it was, ben is always cracking us up and when we would go to the fertility clinic it was like <laughs> i felt so guilty because yeah. he's cracking us up and we just have to have that levity but you're in a room full of people that are dealing with some really tough really emotional heavy. heavy stuff and so you're feeling super guilty for like just giggling yes <laughs> he's like still, stop it ben stop it he still refers to abby as his baby mama yes so <laughs> every year on my birthday i get a happy birthday baby mama <laughs> which is pretty great so, well um this has been absolutely delightful it's everything i hoped it would be um, uh, thank you so much for having me absolutely um and we can uh find you where um Instagram is the best place. That's where I post the most. Um, miracles underscore. Ha- let me look. Happen underscore M. And I actually right now have a donation link for cystic fibrosis. Um, it's their great strides. It's coming up, I think, next Saturday. Unfortunately, not in person due to COVID. But um, this month, May, is CF Awareness Month. So, um I just am sharing a lot of different things on my Instagram. Every Monday I have a live. Someone else is taking over talking about their story with Instagram. And then we go on that night and do a live. And I'd love for anyone to join us. So, Perfect. Thank you, Em. Yeah, thank you.